Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi there, and welcome to episode eight of the Wealth Code podcast. Oh man, this is a doozy of an episode. Get ready to be uncomfortable. Today, we are talking about birth control with the brilliant evolutionary psychology researcher, Dr. Sarah Hill. She's a professor and a researcher whose focus shifted to something that she happened upon when she realized it was impacting her own life, birth control. She's written in an absolutely hilarious, measured, and even account about the little pill that so many women take every day, the birth control pill. Dr. Sarah has more than 50 scientific publications and research grants to her name, and she's been featured in publications from the Scientific American to The Economist to The Washington Post. What I love most about her book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, The Surprising Science of Women, Hormones, and the Law of Unintended Consequences, is that Dr. Sarah is not prescriptive or judgmental about it. She's very measured, and she provides us with the science so that we can make a decision on our own. She paints a picture that has many downsides, including impacts to memory, mental health, sexual libido, and choice of mate, but she's also measured about the fact that many modern women may not be as far along in their careers and where they want to be in life had they not been on the pill for a period of time. This conversation is one I forwarded to a number of my girlfriends who have been on the pill, Please do the same because more women need to know about the potential impacts that the pill has on their stress levels, their thought patterns, and their overall happiness. Enjoy the conversation. Sarah, hello, hello. Welcome. Lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. I am so, so excited about this conversation. I devoured your book this past weekend, and I'm thrilled and really annoyed by the fact that so many of us have no idea about the stuff that you put in your book. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to have this conversation and hopefully spread this to others out there. Awesome. Thank you. So one, just to start off, what's one myth that you want to debunk about women's health? Um, about women's health? Well, so gosh, I could probably give a whole bunch, but I mean, just like about hormones in general, um, I would like to debunk the whole idea that um, hormones are somehow something that makes you irrational or something that sort of operates outside your normally, like your normal signaling architecture that your brain uses to create the experience of who you are. And like for people to understand that like your hormones aren't something that happens to you, like you are your hormones um, and they're part of what makes you, you and can't go and change a person's hormone profile um, and not change who they are. So how often do we say, oh, she's hormonal? Well, yeah, she is. And so is he. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, we all are. And like, we've gotten into this weird place where it's like, there's the essence of a human being um, and then there's their hormones. We're biological creatures and the experience of being the person that we are is created by biological experiences that go on in the body and that includes signaling by the hormones and so they're a part of who we are 
and they influence what our brain does and how we experience the world. And this is equally as true for men and women, right? So women are not somehow unique in being influenced by the activities of their hormones, right? Both men and women are influenced by the activities of their hormones. And we're actually a lot smarter, wiser, and better adapted to our environments because of it. And how many hormones do we have? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) We don't even know yet how many we have. I've never done a hormone count, but I mean, it's not like hundreds of hormones. It's probably like, it's tens of hormones, but I don't know exactly how many different hormones there are. If you're including like, just like the hormones that we think of that are actually acting on the nervous system, like if we're talking about like cortisol, you know, and estrogen and progesterone and things that we think about that way, there's probably my guess and I have absolutely no idea because I haven't like looked at a like table in a neuroendocrinology textbook in a very long time um, that there's probably between 10 and 20 but if you include all the signaling like precursor hormones Mm -hmm. things like luteinizing hormone and um, follicle stimulating hormone and the precursor hormones that get released in order to activate cortisol response it's a lot more so it's a bunch and so all of these hormones are forcing, not forcing us, but are signaling to our bodies, whether we need to fight or flight, kind of fight or, or flee or be hungry or have sex, or there's, I mean, those are the chemical messengers that are really telling us what we want or don't want, right? Yes, no, exactly. It's like when it comes to who we are, the experience of who we are, the biological instruments that are responsible for that are neurotransmitters, like the signaling molecules. So now we've got this little thing called the birth control pill, and that apparently gives us some hormones that are supposed to only, or what most people think is they, it stops you from beginning pregnant and that's it. Right. Yeah. And hormones, and this is especially true of um, women's sex hormones, they don't act locally. Like there's no such thing as a localized effect of a hormone. Hormones work by getting into the bloodstream and then they travel everywhere in your body that blood goes, right? And that means that it goes everywhere because that's what blood does. And, um, and they get picked up by every cell in the body that has a receptor for those hormones. And so even though, you know, I've heard women tell me that their doctors will tell them for example, that the hormonal IUD that they're on, which is like locally acting hormones that are only acting on the activities of their uterus, right, and their ovaries, it's impossible to have a localized effect of a hormone. No matter, you know, where it is that you put a hormone, when it gets into your body, right, whether you're using a hormonal cream, whether you're using um, a hormonal IUD or a patch or a vaginal ring or you're taking a pill, um, those hormones all end up in the same place right? And that place is everywhere. So when you use a hormonal form of contraception, it's going to change what your brain does. So there's, while there may be differences between the pill versus the patch versus a an IUD, it still is adding exogenous hormones to your body and changing the composition of those chemical messengers that are going out telling your body what to do or not do. Exactly. And so it's like, we, um, it's going to affect, yeah, what our brain does and, and it's, it's exactly what it tells it to do will differ depending on the hormonal composition of the pill that you're on, if you're on a pill or, you know, the hormonal composition of the patch or the ring or the hormonal IUD that you're on. And then also the, the, the research seems to suggest that um, the modality of delivery also might be important, right? And that 
the way that the hormones influence women might also differ a little bit depending on whether or not the hormones are taken orally or whether or not they're administered, for example, intervaginally. Because there's um, some evidence suggesting, especially with mental health outcomes, that the mental health outcomes seem to be the worst on the non-oral products. And it could be that the non-oral products also don't, you know, the majority of them do not have a synthetic estrogen. Instead, they only have the synthetic progestin when you don't have estrogens sort of counterbalancing the effects that you get from progesterone or from a synthetic progesterone, which is known as a progestin, um, that that can make side effects worse because most of the sort of negative or undesirable side effects that women get from hormonal contraceptives come from the progestins. And the estrogen is actually generally just in um, oral contraceptives or in uh, hormonal contraceptives. Um, to try to offset some of those feelings and, and make people feel a little bit more normal um, than they would if they were on a progestin-only product. So pulling back up for a second, so the, the pill, for those who don't know it, on a high level, how does it work? So the way that the pill works, it essentially shuts down the hormonal cascade that goes on that kickstarts ovulation. So generally during a regular menstrual cycle, what happens during the second half of the cycle after ovulation has occurred, um, generally after ovulation occurs, um, levels of both estrogen and progesterone are relatively high, right? So after you ovulate, um, this little temporary endocrine stru structure called the corpus luteum forms, and it releases high levels of progesterone and your levels of estrogen, um, even though they fall right after ovulation, they begin to increase until you're at the end of your cycle. And when you get this hormonal message, when your brain receives this hormonal message of relatively high levels of progesterone and relatively lower levels of estrogen, this tells the brain, do not, under any circumstances, start um, initiating the hormonal cascade that's going to cause ovulation to occur. Um, and the reason for that is that during that luteal phase of the cycle, when progesterone is high, the body is actually waiting to see whether that egg that was already released um, is going to be fertilized and implant, right? And so it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for women to just keep on ovulating when, when they haven't even waited to see whether or not you know, they might get pregnant from the last round of egg release. Getting that hormonal message tells the brain, don't tell the ovaries to initiate ovulation. And so it puts everything kind of on hold, right? And so when you take the birth control pill, um, what that actually does is a synthetic mimic of the second half of your cycle. Mm -hmm. So the hormonal message that you're getting every day with um, the pill or the patch or the vaginal ring is one of relatively high levels of progestins or that synthetic progesterone and then relatively low or no levels of um, estrogen, right? And what this ends up doing, because it suppresses the hormonal cascade that causes ovulation, you know, it prevents pregnancy. And in so doing, it also keeps women's own endogenous levels of sex hormones really low. And then it supplants them with this daily dose of this synthetic hormonal message of relatively high levels of progestin. Um, and then a low level of estrogen. And so you're, again, it, going back to what we said before, you're changing the natural hormonal cascade within your body. And then assuming or thinking that it was just going to impact your ability or lack of ability to get pregnant. But in truth, based on your book, it seems like there's a whole bunch of different things that this can have an impact to from emotions to 
brain health, to your choice of mate, to your sexual drive, to your ability to get pregnant. I mean, there's so many different things that seems to have a cascading effect. When you think about the fact that we are organisms that were designed by the process of evolution by natural selection, right? Which is this process by which you have traits that get passed down from one generation to the next because they promoted successful reproduction, right? And what that means is that sex is like such a huge part of every single thing that we do as human beings. And so many of our different brain areas and, and bodily functions are attuned to our sex hormones. And because, you know, sex is something that is really imperative to the evolutionary process and it's made it really imperative to the continuation of our genetic lineage. And so sex hormones have a pervasive effect on lots of different areas of the brain, um, many of which seem to have absolutely nothing to do with sex, but, you know, a lot of times they do. So can you touch on one of the big things that was a revelation for me from the book was kind of, it seemed like it was a revelation for you as well about the HPA axis and how it seemed to be, a, to have been shunted for those women who are taking the pill. Can you talk on that? This is um, super interesting and, and it was really surprising to me. And basically what I learned, and I learned about this at a research talk about something else altogether. And I was at a research talk where they were looking at the effects of um, a person's childhood on how they respond to stress. And in order to test this, they had people come in and do a stress test. So basically what they do is they make people have to give an impromptu public, you know, public speech, um, which really stresses people out. And what they found in their study was that women who are on the birth control pill um, don't experience an increase in stress hormones in response to stress like everybody else does. This research talk that I was at, the researcher just mentioned like, you know, hey, we only actually looked at the men in our sample because most of the women in our sample were on the birth control pill. And it turns out that women on the birth control pill don't experience a cortisol change in response to stress. And because cortisol is a stress hormone, right, and it's actually something that occurs in our body in response to stress because it helps us cope with stress, this is something that's really surprising. It surprised the heck out of me. And so after the talk was over, when I was done listening to this researcher, you know, then explain about what he found in the men in his study, I asked him, like, so tell me about this thing about the women on the birth control pill, because that's all I was able to think about for the rest of the talk. And he said, yeah, you know, it's really interesting because we found that. And so we were wondering if there was just something weird with our sample. So we went and did a literature search and researchers have actually been publishing for decades that women on the pill have a blunted or a totally absent stress hormone response to stress, even though they still experience feeling stressed. Mm -hmm. Right? And their heart still races and they still get like dry mouth and they still feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed out. I hate this. They're not getting this surge in the stress hormone cortisol that naturally cycling women and men get. And this is alarming for a number of reasons. Right. One of the reasons that this is alarming is just that stress hormones, even though, you know, especially cortisol kind of gets a bad rap because, you know, if you have too much of it, it can do things like make you put on belly fat and do other things. But cortisol is actually a really good thing in the context of stress. Um, it helps the brain take information and move it from the short-term memory into long-term memory, right? So that way you'll learn from stressful experiences and actually remember, you know, how to be able to better cope with them in the future. So that's like if you, if you put your hand on a hot stove, you 
that shocks you and that's stress and you remember not to do it ever again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it helps to filter those things from short-term memory into long-term memory. So it actually creates the birth of new neurons in the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain that helps um, with learning and memory. And it also does things like dumping fat and sugar into our bloodstream so we can make a quick getaway if we need to. It keeps the immune system relatively suppressed so that way it doesn't go overboard um, if you end up getting injured. Um, and so it does all kinds of things to help us actually cope with and be able to allow our body to recover from stressful situations. And so it's alarming just for that reason that pill-taking women don't experience the surge in cortisol in response to stress. Um, but it's also really alarming because the pattern that is observed in women who are on the pill um, looks an awful lot like that that we see in people who have um, experienced trauma or have been diagnosed with PTSD. So um, women who are on the pill, their, their stress response system looks a lot like somebody who's been traumatized and who had a stress response system that went into absolute overdrive mm -hmm. and eventually just went and shut itself off. Because this is generally what happens with the stress response, is that if you have a cortisol response that's just going overboard um, and is kind of going nonstop, what generally happens is the body will find ways to actually turn it off. And the reason it does this is because even though cortisol is good for us in small, short doses, like when we're experiencing stress, and it does those things like leading to the birth of new neurons and allowing things to go from short-term into long-term memory and so on, when we experience chronic cortisol, um, chronically high cortisol, it actually can just cause our whole body to completely fall apart. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is cortisol is kind of a great redistributor of bodily resources, right? It takes resources that are being used for doing things like digestion and, and keeping the body uh, healthy by taking care of cell repair and fighting pathogens and doing all these other things. It takes all those resources and invests them in stress. All of your bodily resources are invested in stress all the time then it causes the rest of your body to fall apart. And in fact, this is actually why salmon fall apart after they swim upstream is because their cortisol, it's actually cortisol that makes them fall apart because they go into hypercortisol mode as they're sort of going up the stream to find their partner and their love of their life uh, for whom, with whom to reproduce. And it, that's what makes them fall apart. And if you snip their adrenal glands or remove their adrenal glands, which is what produce cortisol, they don't fall apart at all. Yeah. And so anyway, so too much cortisol is bad. And because of that, the body will just shut it off. And that's what we see in people with PTSD and people who've experienced trauma. And it's also what we see in women on the birth control pill. Are you saying that if you're on the birth control pill, then your, so your HPA axis is kind of depleted, right? So, and that means that you're, you're not actually producing that much cortisol. Is that how it is? Well, so this is the thing. Nobody actually understands what happens, what the progression is, or why it happens. Here's what it looks like is happening based on all of the clues that are in the literature. And, um, and these are the things that I, I go over in the book. What I think goes on is that when people start the birth control pill, when women initially go on hormonal contraception, something about it causes their HPA axis to go into absolute overdrive. So they just start having tons of cortisol signaling. My guess is that it's something in the progestins that's actually stimulating cortisol receptors is what I think is going on because there's some other weird research that I read that actually shows that some progestins have binding affinity for cortisol receptors 
And so what could be going on is that these things are stimulating cortisol receptors and causing the body to just go into hyper hypercortisolemia. Mm-hmm. Um, and and increasing the number of cortisol receptors then. Increasing cortisol activity yeah. in the body. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like the body's going into cortisol overdrive. Mm-hmm. And so then what happens is the body is like, oh no, we aren't doing this. And so then it shuts it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and my guess is that the timeline on this is a couple of months. And the reason I say this is because there's a lot of research when you look at the mental health effects of the birth control pill. What you generally see is that within that first three month period, women are at a significantly greater risk of things like developing a severe depression and suicide even, like after like three to six months has gone by. And some women still experience a heightened risk after that period of time, but you do see that it diminishes somewhat and that it tends to be most severe during that early time. Mm-hmm. And what I think is happening is that during that time, women's bodies are just freaking out because they're basically feeling like they're in a complete panic, right? But nothing else in their environment seems that way. And it's making them feel like I'm totally overwhelmed and, and there's nothing I can do about it. And they don't even know what it is, you know, because there's nothing stressful going on in their environment. Once that gets blunted and shut down, it probably actually takes a little bit of the edge off the mental health effects that can happen. But having a blunted, um, a blunted stress response is linked with having worse mental health outcomes than having one that's functioning. Right? It's not good for women to be experiencing hypercortisolemia. It's not good for women to be experiencing hypocortisolemia, which is what we get, you know, women not having this adaptive stress hormone response um, in response to stressful stimuli in their environment. And for me, you know, looking at this, this could have all kinds of implications for things like um, a woman's risk of autoimmunity. Cortisol plays an important role in regulating inflammatory activity. It can have an important role in things like weight regulation problems because we know that cortisol can, it does dump fat and sugar into your bloodstream and can lead to the, um, the accumulation of belly fat. It can, might potentially increase a woman's risk of type 2 diabetes because it's keeping blood sugars rel- you know, artificially high if it's not able to regulate um, because cortisol also helps to regulate um, blood sugars and triglycerides. We just don't know the range of effects that this has. And this is something that we really need research on, just given the number of important sort of downstream consequences that cortisol dysregulation can have. The body, a very specific body part, and that being the brain. I like that you call it out as, as well of saying this one thing of this cortisol response is going to have so many different effects down the line. And so right now, given that we're already all stressed out of our minds because of 2020, is that one of those things where you would say all other things being equal, it may benefit to be, to pull yourself off of the pill right now, because that is something that's just an an additional stressor, which we don't need. You know, I don't know that I would necessarily make recommendations about like going off of hormonal contraceptives in response to stressful things going on in the environment. I don't even know how long it takes a person to rebound from it. But I will say this, it certainly can't hurt. The idea of trying to cope with stress without a functioning um, stress response is a daunting thing to think about. And so you were mentioning, so is, do we know... I think you mentioned, was it kind of the two to three month time frame, which is when at least there's that massive surge for, for women um, of suicidal thoughts or depressive thoughts or, um, but is, so is that usually the time frame that 
is what it, kind of what it takes to impact the hippocampus? Yeah, nobody knows. I mean, it's like it'd be an interesting study to do to compare or to look at what is the timeline for which an individual needs to be experiencing trauma before their HPA access just shuts down the stress response. And I don't know what the answer to that is. You know, most of the research that looks at the stress response and HPA access response to trauma look at longer term stressors. So things like like a warfare context, mm -hmm. childhood neglect, that sort of thing. And it's generally measured retrospectively. Somebody has depressive symptoms, they measure the functioning of their HPA access, they make note of the types of trauma that they experienced or didn't experience, and then they're able to um, sort of put two and two together. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot of research where like somebody experiences a trauma or is experiencing trauma and then they like figure out like what is the time point at which this sort of shutdown occurs. There might be some animal research that speaks to that. I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. What are the different types of symptoms for an HPA access shutdown? One of the biggest symptoms of it is just having a mental health problems. So having problems with anxiety and depression. And let me just be, you know, hasten to add that most anxiety and depression is not caused by this, right? So it was not an amazing symptom because it's incredibly nonspecific and that could be anything, but that is definitely a big one. Another one that they find specifically in the context of birth control pills, and this one's really interesting because it's not a symptom that any of us would like make note of in ourselves, but it's something that if women know about it, maybe they can even do a little set up some sort of a scenario where they're able to test this. But what the research finds is that with women who um, have a blunted stress response in response to the pill, um, that they, they tend to have a problem with emotional memory. One of the things that cortisol does, um, just as a reminder, is it helps to flag things that are important as being worth remembering. Right, it helps to shuttle information from our short-term memory into our long-term memory. Emotionally balanced events tend to cause a stress response, right? So if something is really scary, right, it increases cortisol. Um, if something's really amazing, that also increases cortisol. Mm. So for example, some of the contexts that elicit some of the strongest cortisol responses out there are Christmas morning in children, yeah. right? You get a huge cortisol response yeah. and like falling in love. Um, in adults. And like when you meet somebody you're incredibly attracted to, or you're just like starting to fall in love with, that causes giving birth, big surge in cortisol. And part of what cortisol is doing, again, is taking this emotional event and it's shuttling it into your long-term memory. And it's actually helping to create the experience of who you are, right? Because we are sort of our experiences and our memories. And what some research has done studies where they've taken in samples of women who are on the pill or off of the pill, and then they stress them out then they measure their cortisol response, and then they read them two stories. They read them an emotionally valenced story, so a story that has a lot of emotional undertones and you know, has sort of an emotional storyline, and then a neutral story that's totally boring and you know, just about like a random day and like losing your keys and isn't that a bummer. About a week later, they brought the women back who were in the study back into the laboratory, and they gave them a pop quiz. Um, and they were just like, hey, do you remember those stories we told you last week? Like, we're really curious about how much you remember from either of those. And then they asked women about details from the stories. And what they found was that for the naturally cycling women, what, what you get is exactly what you should get when cortisol happens. And that is they found that when they stressed those women out, 
their cortisol increased. And as a result of that cortisol increase, they had a greater memory for the emotional story than they did for the neutral story. For the pill-taking women, what they found was that when they stressed them out, there was no change in cortisol. They remembered just as few details about the emotional story as they did the neutral story. And so they just really weren't able to remember the details of either. So what this suggests is that, you know, the pill by um, blunting our cortisol response might actually be robbing us in some ways from learning and remembering and encoding and embedding and embodying the, some of the most important memories in our lives, like some of the things that create, that like make us who we are. Because emotional events, I mean, things like falling in love and meeting really important business partner or having a child or getting married or even bad things like a really awful day, like remembering those and having those emotional memories um like who we are i mean that's what well, that's what life is that's the ups and downs the juiciness the colors right if it's it's almost like it sounds like being on the pill is a muted version or yeah yeah and dialed me, down version yeah and for me like that was exactly what it felt like um but of course i didn't notice it until after i was off of it but for me it felt like when i transitioned off the pill after being on it for more than a decade it just felt like all of a sudden I went from something that was like one-dimensional like drawing on a page where all of a sudden I climbed out of it and it was like I just felt things more intensely and things felt more meaningful mm-hmm. it was just that like things felt like they had me- meaning in a way that they didn't before I mean it meant that I felt things more positively but I mean it did also mean that I felt things more more negatively mm-hmm. but I felt alive it like felt really um I remember feeling just really human but the main reason that women go on the pill is because you want to have sex more (laughs) you want to and i mean yes there's there's pcos symptoms that sometimes people take the pill for there's there's a whole host of other things but the main reason is that and here we're saying that maybe you have less of an interest or less of that like brightness and the colorfulness of life yeah no i know it's like one of the greatest ironies of our time is that you know the pill which so many of us do go on um to facilitate sex actually ends up in some women just like totally killing their libido altogether because of the things that the pill sort of dampens um sexual interests and sexual desire is one of them yeah and we'll get to that in a little bit but um just going back to the kind of covering off on the the mental health side of things so is this the idea is a hypothesis that just because your hpa axis is so overwhelmed and it's it's almost like you're you you've waterboarded your system and you're just oh it's too much. Do you just tap out and you say, okay, I can't do this anymore? And that leads to, not maybe that leads to, but potentially exacerbates existing depressive or anxiety symptoms. I mean, it may um, actually cause them, but mm-hmm. there's not evidence. There hasn't been a caught like a double blind placebo um, controlled research study mm-hmm. looking at whether taking the pill actually causes in depression in some women. Chances are that women who are, because it's not just that women who were depressed before go on the pill and all of a sudden they're really depressed. It does cause new mental health problems 
um, in women who were previously lacking in any mental health issues. Those women may have been predisposed, mm. right, or genetically predisposed to developing mental health problems. I wouldn't quite characterize it as it just makes it worse. Um, it seems that in some women it can actually initiate um, initiate a depressive episode or an anxiety. And I like what you say in your book of if you are going to be changing a pill, for example, or going on to it, that find a friend, find a buddy that can kind of tell you and, and you can let them know that you're going to be starting this because oftentimes we don't know ourselves whether this is just a dark cloud that's come around us or whether this is really something to, to be concerned about. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like our brain is like really good at sort of coming up with stories about um, why we're feeling the way that we're feeling. And because of this, it can be really difficult for us to keep tabs on our own mental health. You know, a lot of times when people are slipping into a depression, they'll think that their life is just getting worse. And it's not that they're getting depressed. It's just that things suck a lot more than they used to, yeah. right? Or their job is, you know, harder than it used to be, or they're just slipping and not as smart or you know motivated as they used to be or you know covid for god's sake you know and so people will just think that it's these external forces and so it's a really good idea for women to you know to tell a friend if they're starting a pill or if they're switching a pill i like the idea of keeping a journal um it can be really useful to help you actually have like quantifiable data where you're able to look and sort of look at what your patterns are and see like, has anything changed? Have things gotten better? Or have they gotten worse since I've initiated this new birth control regimen? Um, and then that can be a starting point for having conversations with your doctor about either switching the prescription that you're on or potentially going off of it altogether. And then lastly, you, you touched on the idea of autoimmunity and how something within the birth control pill could because it's impacting the HPA access, can then impact immunity and therefore autoimmunity. Can you talk a little bit more about how, how that mechanism works? Yeah, and so um, exactly what the mechanism is, like big question mark, but I can speculate on it. So we do know from the research that uh, the birth control pill does seem to contribute to the risk for certain types of autoimmunity. It's been well research um, with respect to Crohn's disease in particular, but it's likely going to be find, found to be implicated in other things as well. And there's two mechanisms by which the pill um, sort of alters processes that ultimately can change a woman's risk for autoimmunity. The first is by blunting of the HPA axis. Um, cortisol helps regulate inflammatory activity in the body. And when your body is just like shutting down cortisol signaling, that means that it's going to um, be more difficult for your body to keep inflammatory activity in check because uh, cortisol is actually it's like antagonistic to inflammatory activity. It helps to turn it turn down the signal. Mm -hmm. um, and so if that gets turned down, it could lead to an exaggerated inflammatory response, thereby contributing to the risk of autoimmunity because autoimmunity is an issue that's driven in part by um, dysfunction in inflammatory regulation processes. The second thing that could potentially play a role is just, is this every day, you know, getting this hormonal message of high levels of progestin relative to relatively low levels of estrogen. Mm -hmm. And progesterone, right, which progestin is not, but progesterone, the actual real deal, is an immunosuppressive. So it actually also helps to regulate inflammatory activity in the body and keep it relatively low. 
Um, and the reason that it does this is because when progesterone is high in the cycle, this is actually when the body is getting ready for the possibility that an egg is going to implant. Developing embryo has a lot of things in common with a pathogen, right? It has different genes, it's replicating really quickly, right? And it's siphoning resources from the body. So it seems a little bit like cancer, right? A virus and a parasite all at once, right? And these are the types of things, these are the kinds of cues that normally the immune system would use to, to go into search and destroy mode. And it would go after that organism that has all of these characteristics and destroy it. And obviously that wouldn't work out very well in the context of pregnancy. And because of this, progesterone um, actually keeps the immune system relaxed. It tells the immune system like, chill out, right? Chill out because if something comes around, um, we're just gonna see what happens with it because it, we might wanna keep it around, it might be a pregnancy. Progesterone and potentially progestin, there's not a lot of research on this, unfortunately, but progestin likely has similar effects in terms of the immune system. It likely has immunosuppressive effects. Mm. Um, and what this could mean is that it could actually um, decrease the risk of inflammatory activity in this, thing, in this type of thing while the woman is on the pill. But then once she goes off of it, it could go totally into overdrive because the body is not used to having that artificial break on inflammatory activity. One mechanism would increase the risk of autoimmunity that would develop during the time that a woman is on the pill. And that's what we'd expect to see with the, if HPA axis involvement is what's going on. This is something where we would see the increased risk in autoimmunity after a woman goes off of the pill. And there's evidence that suggests that both types of scenarios may be associated with an increased risk in autoimmunity. And so what do we need to learn? A lot. Like this has been something that's been very, you know, understudied. And part of it is just because of the difficulties of studying things related to birth control pills. Um, but also autoimmunity is just sort of a nebulous thing because there's so many different ways that it manifests itself. And people really aren't sure if it's the same thing or if it's a different thing. So for example, is Crohn's disease the same thing as MS or as lupus? Like, like, should we treat those the same as outcomes or should we study them separately? And so there's a lot of sort of, you know, lumping versus splitting that's going on with the research. And then you've got these two possible mechanisms by which um, pill use could be linked with autoimmunity. I mean, all of this stuff needs to be sorted out and there's not a lot of research on any of it. This is one of the frontiers that we really need uh, the research community to begin to explore when it comes to trying to understand how birth control pills might influence um, a woman's risk of developing autoimmunity sort of across the lifespan. So basically you're damned if you do and you're damned when you're, or when you're on it and you're damned when you get off of it, potentially. Sure. Yeah, and I think it's the number of autoimmune cases, it's heavily swung towards women, oh, right? Yeah. So I wonder if there is, if anybody has ever done a study to say, okay, well, let's look at all the different cases and correlate that, obviously not cause, causative, but correlate that with women who are using the pill for yeah, years yeah. beforehand. Yeah, I know. Like, and, and there's not a whole lot of research that I've seen that looks mm -hmm. at that exact issue. Like, none that I can think of, honestly, because autoimmunity is overwhelmingly a female thing. Um, and it seems to be the risk is greatest during um, premenopausal years. Symptoms tend to relax after menopause. It suggests there's sex, I mean, sex hormone involvement, like all over the place. Like mm. we know that they're involved. 
we just, it's, nobody's really got a very good handle on exactly what they're doing and how they're involved and what it means. You know, it's going to be a really important frontier in research. Um, and then of course, how do these synthetics then also impact, um, also impact the risk? Interesting. Um, so shifting over then to the other big topic that I really loved in the book, which was the choice of mate. I thought that was a really interesting one. Talk to us about that. Well, so this research is rooted in some research that's been done now for more than 20 years. And this is just research showing that as women's ovarian hormones change across the cycle, that women's interest in sex and even who they're most attracted to also differs somewhat. And so what this research finds is that in naturally cycling women during times in the cycle when estrogen is the dominant hormone, and this is generally what's going on in the first half of the cycle, um, right prior to and right near ovulation. And during this time, women report being more interested in sex, they're having more sex, they're thinking about sex more, um, but they're also particularly drawn to men who have indicators that are historic, have historically been related to what we would call like high genetic quality. Right. And so these are cues that are linked with things like testosterone. And, you know, so women at high fertility or when estrogen is the dominant hormone, for example, tend to be particularly attracted to men with like deep voices, with sort of a swagger, who are kind of, yeah, the chiseled jaw, the, um, the deeper set eyes and the brow, the firmer brow ridge, right? These types of cues that historically, historically have been linked with tea. Um, are things that women are tend to place a greater emphasis on at when estrogen is high. And there's been research that has actually plotted women's levels of estrogen against the amount of testosterone that they prefer in men based on their faces. And what they find is that you can predict the amount of testosterone in the faces of men that women most desire based on their own levels of estrogen, right? So estrogen loves testosterone. You and know, this doesn't change over... The course of the month? Yeah, it changes over the course of the month. So what you find is that um, during the second half of the cycle, when estrogen levels fall and um, progesterone is the dominant hormone, um, women's preference for um, masculinity and um, testosterone-related qualities actually decrease. And women prefer a slightly more feminine um, male face and prefer men who um, have a little bit you know, less of these like sort of swagger, sexy cad kinds of qualities and tend to prefer or sort of land on something a little bit more like the good dad types of qualities. And so researchers have been finding this for, I don't know, this research has been out there for about 20 years or so. And so it was really recently that other researchers looking at these effects said, well, wait a minute. If we find that women at points in the cycle when estrogen is high, like men with these sort of masculinized faces and these cues that historically have been linked with testosterone, what happens when women are on the birth control pill? and estrogen is kept incredibly low across the cycle. And across the cycle, synthetic progesterone or progestins are the dominant hormone. Would it then be the case that women would then actually prefer less masculine men than what's preferred by naturally cycling women sort of on average across the cycle? And so the researchers went and um, tested this and that's exactly what they find. So women who are on the birth control pill prefer less masculine male faces relative to naturally cycling women. Mm -hmm. And they actually choose as partners men with somewhat less masculine faces 
and are chosen by um, women who are naturally cycling, right? And so this goes to show that, you know, our sex hormones, because they have a hand in who we're attracted to, you know, that our birth control pills could be having, tilting our hand when it comes to our choice of partners. It might lead us to choose um, a different partner than we might have chosen if we were not on the birth control pill. Right. Which does... That's bonkers to me. That's absolutely crazy to me. That's something that we started using again back in the 60s can have a reverberating effect one, two generations down the line. I mean, for the future of all generations, really, because that's the choice of mate that you've decided upon because potentially because of the pill. You might, you may not have chosen that mate had you not been on the pill. Right. No, I know. It's so crazy. It's so interesting to think about the way that these small little changes that we make, where we think we're changing one little thing, mm-hmm. right? Oh, I'm changing the activities of my ovaries. And so I'm not going to make an egg and I won't be pregnant. It has these cascading, um, you know, impacts on um, society. Now, so then if someone comes off the pill, how does that impact their potential interest in their mate that they've chosen while they were on the pill? Right. And there's been um, some mixed results on this, but now a new study just came out in favor of the idea that it could potentially have implications for how satisfied you are in your relationships. So there's been multiple studies now that have shown that women who choose their partners when they're on the birth control pill, um, once they go off of it, can experience a decrease in sexual attraction to their partner and decreased relationships and sexual satisfaction with their relationship partner um, compared to um, what they experienced before they went off of the pill. And in one study that was particularly provocative, what they found was that when women who chose their partners went off of the pill, that all women on average experienced changes in their attraction to and satisfaction with their partners But whether or not that feeling or that change was positive or negative Mm. depended on how sexy their partner was. And basically what they found was that women who accidentally chose, right, as their partner, somebody who was really good looking, these like uh, these markers of sort of like, you know, good genetic quality, those women after they went off the pill were actually more satisfied with and more attracted to their partners than they were prior um, to going off the pill. But for women who were partnered with less attractive partners, they were actually less satisfied and less sexually satisfied and less attracted to their partners relative to what they were when they were on the pill. So again, this potentially could have, you know, somewhat devastating effect on some women's relationships or potentially amazing effects. You know, if you're one of those women, you know, went off, goes off the pill and then is like, oh my gosh, like, this is amazing. Like, I'd luck into this. It's a fantastic you know, outcome. Um, but for other women, I um, mean, I've heard this story from women where they did choose their partner um, when they were on the pill. And then after they went off of it, they just didn't feel attracted to them. And, and it ended up causing the dissolution of their relationship. And that can potentially be really scary. Now with the, the idea of choosing this mate, right? Ultimately we choose a mate. Why? To procreate at some, I mean, that's evolutionarily, that's been the reason, right? With that idea, how is this impacting that choice of mate and specifically the MHC genes? Right. So one of the things that um, research finds um, when it's looking at the partner preferences of naturally cycling women. So again, this is women who are actually, you know, ovulating and having the normal or the natural dynamic changes in sex hormones across the cycle. And what this research tends to find is that when estrogen is high, you know, again, when fertility is high and pregnancy is possible, 
um, research finds that women experience a heightened preference for the scent of men who have different major histocompatibility genes than they have themselves. And this is believed to serve a function in terms of helping us identify partners who are gonna give us good immune genes, or like good, in quotes again, good immune genes, which will improve the health outcomes of our offspring. And the idea here is that because major histocompatibility complex genes are, um, they're expressed codominantly, meaning that both your and your partner's, all of, the, all of the genes are expressed instead of just the dominant gene. And the reason that they're expressed codominantly is because it's something that codes for the number of different antigens that a person's immune cells are able to pick up on. And the idea is the more variability you have in your MHC genes, the greater number of sort of you know, immunological bad guys like germs that your immune system is gonna be able to detect. And so the idea is you wanna choose a partner who has different immune genes than your own. So that way your kiddos are gonna have these like really robust immune systems that are able to pick up on a huge range of um, potential germs. And lo and behold, you know, the research shows that um, when women are at high fertility in the cycle, so when estrogen is high and pregnancy is possible, that they do experience a heightened preference for the scent of men who have different immune genes than themselves. Subsequent research finds is that when you look at pill-taking women, mm -hmm. so again, pill-taking women don't experience a surge in estrogen and they don't ovulate. And so um, estrogen is never high across the cycle and you know, fertility is never high. Women who, have, who are on the pill do not experience an increased preference for MHC dissimilar men. And some studies have actually found that they have a preference for men who have similar MHC genes to themselves, right? So they might be more likely to be attracted to the scent of somebody who might even be a genetic relative, because that's another function that um, the preference for MHC dissimilarity serves, is that it helps to prevent um, inbreeding. And obviously we have other cues by which we can um, avoid that, but um, that's like one of the things that it helps assist with, especially in other species. So yeah, and this is potentially really, again, interesting because it suggests that if you're on the pill, it could increase the probability that you choose a partner that is not necessarily a good genetic match in terms of MHC gene compatibility. I will say that with this research, you know, it's really messy. And the reason that it's really messy, um, and so, and because of this, the results are a little bit, like they can be a little all over the place. And it, one of the reasons for this is that the way that they actually measure or test the for genetic similarity. It's a little bit rudimentary and we need more sophisticated ways of looking at this, but it's at least possible, right, that this is an effect because multiple studies have found it. Some studies have not. And so this is one of those things where we need more science to sort of really push these ideas um, forward. For right now, I can say at least this, and that is that some research suggests that it's possible that the pill is um, increasing a woman's risk of choosing a partner that has suboptimal MHC genes um, relative to her own when mm. it comes to like reproduction. Yeah. So hypothetically, if we go back in time thinking that people have been taking the pill since the 60s, right? Could it follow that your mother, your grandmother found a mate that was not, that had the same MHC genes that could be part and of the equation as to why a child or the grandchild's immune system is more depressed and less able to cope with the number of different pathogens that are out there. And that's certainly one possibility, right? Given the results, I mean, that is 
that would be the downstream consequence, right? The downstream consequence of choosing somebody. If it's true that um, MHC heterozygosity does in fact confer a health-related advantage, and there's evidence that suggests that this is the case, it's certainly the case theoretically, and there's empirical evidence that suggests that this is the case. There's not a ton of it, but there is the, the empirical evidence that exists suggests that this is the case then one would predict that yes, if you're choosing somebody whose immune genes are more similar to your own, then the prediction would be that the health of your children would be relatively less robust or like their health would be less good than that of somebody who's got more heterozygosity or heterozygous um, immune genes. And I wonder if, if you add on top of that, the fact that more women are having C-sections, the fact that, I mean, as we age, a lot of people are on the pill. If you add on the things that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation of you're having more autoimmunity, you're having more mental health problems. It's like we're stacking it potentially. You're born with less of that good variability of the MHC genes to fight against these things that are out in the environment. Plus you don't go oh, come through the vaginal canal. And so therefore, again, you're not covered in that, that protective membrane, if you will. And then as you age around 15, 16, you start taking the pill. And also your, the brain is still developing. So from age 16 to what, 20, 25, when your brain is still developing, you're now hurt, potentially hurting your life for the rest of your life. And yeah, potentially have reverberating effects on your anxiety, your depression, your, your way of thinking, and even then your choice of mate as well. I know it's like, yeah, I know all of these different effects and yeah, and each one sort of has this like reverberating effect on the next layer. It can get really overwhelming, but I mean, this is what's always going to happen anytime you have a highly interdependent system with our bodies do. It's like, you know, we have cellular and mechanistic interdependence within our bodies. And then of course we have, you know, social interdependence within our you know, social fabric and our choice of partners and then, you know, what we do and all of these things just, yeah, they, they just keep on ricocheting out into the, out into the universe. Yeah. It's a link. It's all, it's all linked together. So then what, I mean, I've just painted a very bad picture, obviously, um, or one version of a bad picture, right? But there is some, one, there's so many different options of pills, right? So for you, have you seen, and I know in your book, you, you kind of compare some of the different ones, um, specifically with that Denmark study, seeing how different versions of the pill would impact people's mental health, right? And, and depression. Have you seen specific pills that are better than others? Or, you know, is a multiphasic one better? Is a patch better? What, what's your take on that? When you look at the mental health outcomes, the the research overwhelmingly seems to suggest that oral contraceptive is the best option of all of them. And which might seem sort of surprising to mm. people, because especially doctors tend to like to tout sort of the low or localized effects of hormones when they use the vaginal ring or when they use the hormonal IUD. But the research seems to suggest that those and the shot, that all of those tend to be associated with a much greater risk of developing mental health problems than the oral contraceptives. My inclination would be, so for example, if it was my daughter and we were you know, having a conversation and she was like, I want to go on hormonal contraceptives, I would probably have her try a combination oral contraceptive. 
pill that contains both a progestin and a synthetic estrogen because the progestin only products seem to also have a greater risk of negative mental health consequences relative to the combined products. And so I would want to keep her clear of the non-oral products, which, which also, again, seem to have a heightened um, risk of, um, of developing negative mental health outcomes. With the other types of risk factors, so for example, with HPA axis dysregulation, with things like um, mate attraction or um, sexual functioning, um, those studies haven't done as good of a job of dividing up the risk of developing those, you know, types of undesirable consequences based on the either the type of hormones or the modality by which the hormones are delivered. And so the only, you know, real information I would have to go off of is the mental health outcomes. But in a lot of ways, those are the ones that are the most important, um, given that, you know, poor mental health can increase a person's risk of things like substance abuse and, and uh, suicide. Mm. Or, so they're probably the most serious and the ones to be avoided all costs if possible. Yeah. And now overall, the multiphasic versus the constant, how do you take, what's your take on those? I would say like single, not use the multiphasic, to use the single dose across the cycle. And even though some physicians and some people like sort of intuitively like to think that the ones that have the varying levels of hormones are going to be like more natural Mm. because they're sort of mimicking what actually goes on naturally. It doesn't really mimic what goes on naturally. And our bodies, especially like women who experience PMS, for example, they don't respond very well to hormonal changes. Um, And so having a multiphasic birth control regimen can actually be a godsend for women who have PMS. Um, A lot of women actually use it for the treatment of severe PMS and PMDD because it keeps hormones constant across the cycle. And because they're not having these big changes, they're not exhibiting these big changes in mood. And so having, you know, if you're going to use a a monophasic sort of prescription, that's going to prevent you from experiencing those sort of fluctuating mood-related changes that you get when you change um, hormones. Even though that doesn't like mimic what goes on in a natural cycle, pill doesn't mimic what goes on in a natural cycle anyway. So you may as well keep your um, hormones relatively steady and then keep yourself from um, having to manage the emotional upheaval that occurs when you get dynamically changing hormones, particularly if you're somebody whose system is very sensitive to them. What is some of the research that you're really excited about that's happening within this space or that your team is doing as well? Right now, we are working on trying to get funding for a study where we're actually going to be looking at different types of genetic polymorphisms that women have and seeing whether or not it influences their risk of developing negative mental health and um, sexual health side effects on different formulations of the birth control pill. Because like, for example, there are individual differences in a glucocorticoid receptor density. And there are individual different, you know, there's genes that code for individual differences in serotonin regulation and serotonin receptor density and this sort of thing. And these are some of the systems that get affected by the birth control pill. And so we might actually be able to identify what women have genetic polymorphisms that make them at risk for developing negative side effects on this versus that type of a prescription. And we're really excited about the possibility that this could have in terms of being able to make um, personalized decisions and individualized decisions about which birth control pill is going to work best with a woman's individual genome. That's amazing. Have, so have you found any specific uh, SNPs right now that you can share with us? We've identified um, SNPs that we want to go after, mm-hmm. um, and then we want to do a big, broad 
study where we just collect saliva samples from women and find out about their experiences and different formulations of the birth control pill and then just start to run a big old correlation study to start with. Um, and then after that, of course, we can sort of move into something a little bit more sophisticated. But initially, it's just really going to be getting handle on whether or not there's an association between different genetic polymorphisms and the risk of developing mental health side effects, whether or not, um, and, and sexual um, health side effects, and whether or not those are sort of differ based on the progestin and the pill that's being used. And then sort of following up with that by sort of narrowing on the ones that seem to be the most promising in terms of yielding information about who, you know, like what sorts of SNPs might be risk factors for um, negative consequences. So that's where, that's what we are seeking to do right now. Nice. Do you have any hypotheses? No, I mean, like, well, I mean, we do have some, like, so for example, and they're pretty, I'll say this, they're pretty like, you know, three steps removed from a really specific hypothesis. But for example, we would expect that women who have certain types of SNPs that are associated with differences in the density of glucocorticoid receptors, right, that SNP should predict variability in a woman's likelihood of experiencing HPA axis dysfunction in response to the birth control pill. There are sort of predictions that are kind of like, we don't know which one is which, right? Is it like if you have like the one that has like the codes for like a, a shorter region or one that's like a longer region or something, like we don't have a specific prediction about which particular, you know, allele is going to be linked with which type of outcome. We have predictions about which polymorphisms be useful in terms of determining whether or not a person is at risk for certain types of outcomes. That's exciting. That was a, that'd be really interesting. I mean, one, one, just from a personalized medicine standpoint, but I also wonder if in the future we'll get to the point where we will be able to see different people's MHC genes as well. And almost like in all those dating apps, just put that in there as well and say, nope, I'm not going to be dating you. Yeah. Well, you know, what's so cool is that you can actually download your genome from 23andMe. Um, you can like get the, all the A's and T's and C's and G's and all of that. Uh, like, and it would be really cool if people could just like upload their regions that code for MHC into their, yeah, dating profiles and it could tell you whether or not. I mean, at some point we'll get to that probably where people are saying, I want to date only somebody who's going to offer me to have blonde hair or like, I want redheaded kids with green eyes, <laughs> you know? That's so funny. Things get stranger. I always say like, we work a lot better um, when we kind of go back to basics. Letting our nose and our brain sort of and our heart guide our romantic partner choices uh, because it's like we are millions of years of evolution have been honing our mate selection processes. Like, so relying on those is probably going to be a pretty wise guide in terms of allowing you or directing you toward individual like partners who have qualities that would help to promote your own lineages and survival and reproductive success. Nice. Well, is there anything else that you want to touch on before we close off? Um, not really. I think that we kind of hit all the high notes. Nice. Well, I always ask three questions to, to guests. So just rapid fire. First one, what would you tell your 15 year old self? So 15 year old me, just so you know, had mm -hmm. like purple hair and my t I think my tongue was already pierced at that time. <laughs> I wasn't showing, and I wasn't showing up to school because I hated it, and I thought it was 
boring. And so what I would tell 15 year old myself was just so that way I could get the show on the road a little bit more quickly is that science isn't a bunch of facts you have to memorize. Like it's a set of tools for discovery and get at it because I didn't really learn to love school and love learning until I was in college. And it was because I, I just, I had no patience for the way that school was done when I was in high school. And so I would just tell myself to like, come on, like this, don't listen to what they're saying. This is actually what science is. Now go use it. Like, go use it. I love that. I love that. Because it's oftentimes that we, we don't realize how cool some of these things are. And then you're like, why did I do that major? Why did I choose that to study when in reality, this is the thing that's piquing my interest and really getting me going in the morning? I think part of the problem is that in the schools, when you have a creative kid, people always tell them that they should be an artist or a writer, right? And so I was always told, oh, you should be an artist or a writer. And it's like, no, like, I don't have a story to tell. <laughs> like, my, I think my book was nicely written. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I think it was like a nicely written book. It's because science is my story to tell. But I had no business like being a storytelling writer, like a novelist. But everybody was trying to shunt me into this idea that I should be an artist, even though I have no skill that way, or like a creative writer when I had no skill that way either, because I'm creative. And it's like, we need to tell creative people to be scientists because they'll solve all the problems because they think about things differently. But as soon as I recognize that, like, oh, this is just an arena for me to come up with crazy ideas and then test them. Like then it like totally was a game changer for me. And I think that the same would be true for a lot of creative kids. And I think that it would really turn around, you know, and, and make science about discovery again, instead of just about reinforcing the status quo a lot of science is turning into. If you think about Leonardo da Vinci, he was a scientist. He was a creator. He was an artist. He was every, uh, everything. Yeah, exactly. Creator. Like, like, let's have a creators create and let's have them create in the area of science to like move our world forward and solve big problems. It's like, we have so many big problems that need to be solved. And I think people get stuck in the idea that, oh, if I'm a scientist, then I have to sit in a white lab coat and I have to write research grants, which is part of it, which yeah. is the annoying part. Yeah, but I mean, even that, it's like, if it's like to study the thing that you're in love with, then it's not so bad. Yeah. You know, I think like for me, I thought the scientist was sitting around, you know, in a stupid white lab coat, like using electrical engineering or like trying to invent glass. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Like that. It just sounded like horribly boring. Yeah. And, like not at all. Like I thought it was chemistry and physics. I didn't realize that it was like thinking about people or organisms and like how they interact with other organisms and what makes them work like that's interesting but nobody ever taught it to me that way if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about women's health what would it be the state of knowledge like we know nothing um, about women's health it's terrible and it's been a complete disservice to us and so if i could just wave a magic wand it would basically be that every study since the time that health research started being conducted was being done equally on men and women and being done in a way that accounts for women cyclically changing sex hormones. So that way we would have this whole body of knowledge about health and aging and behavior and all these other things that we think that we know about humans, but we actually only know about men. Um, so that way there'd be fairness and parity in the way that women are being treated. Yeah, I, it's bonkers to me that we really, it's only since what, the 1970s that women were allowed into studies. And then in, 19, in the 1990s, it was started to be enforced. 
I mean, it's insane to me that even now it's so skewed. Yeah. And even now it's like, you know, you have to include women in your studies, but it's like, you have to include some women in your studies. A lot of these granting agencies aren't, still aren't requiring um, the researchers to include sex as a biological variable where you actually include, you know, collect data from enough men and women where you can test for whether there are sex differences and be able to look at the effect independently in a large enough sample of women and men separately to be able to draw any meaningful conclusions. You know, we're still lumping men and women together like the same type of organism when we're just not, our bodies don't work the same way and our brains don't work the same way. And it's of a hundred people that could be in your study. Okay. If five of them are women, then we've checked that box. Good to go. But that's not, that's not statistically significant. You can't do anything with that. No, you can't do anything with that. No, it's terrible. And that's like the kind of workarounds that people are doing in order to publish quickly. And last question, name one teacher or book that has changed your way of thinking. My mentor, my research advisor, uh, David Buss, introduced me to the uh, ideas of evolutionary biology and then applying them to um, understanding human behavior. And it totally fundamentally changed the way I saw everything in the world. And it was like, once I saw things that way, I couldn't unsee them. So it's been a complete paradigm shift in my sort of view of all living organisms. So is there any book specifically for evolutionary biology that um, the book I would recommend, he wrote a book called the evolution of desire, which is a trade paperback, like type of science book, kind of like this is your brain on birth control. Um, and uh, it just talks about using evolutionary principles to understand men's and women's sexual psychology. And it's just learning about that. I think can be really useful. Like for me, when I, we sort of reading that. I just had the sort of aha moment where I was like, oh, I understand everything now, not just sex. Like I understand the whole thing. And so um, anyway, and I ended up um, going and training with him in graduate school and continuing to learn from him. So nice. Nice. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll include that in the show notes then. This is wonderful. Well, thank you. Thanks for the time. Thanks for, for all this information for the book. I mean, if you haven't read the book, it's, well worth it. I devoured it and I've just been sending it out to everybody to be like, read this. Even if you, if you're on the pill, if you're not on the pill, it's what I love about it is you also did a little bit of kind of, you pulled away and looked at all the domino effect of this one thing, which I wasn't expecting a, an expose on the socioeconomic <laughs> components of, of the pill. So that was, that was really interesting as well. Yeah, no, that's like one of my favorite things is to sort of like think about how things have these cascading influences. And so I couldn't not write that chapter. Where can people find you or find more about the work that you're doing? My handle on social media is uh, Sarah with an H, Sarah E. Hill, PhD. Um, So they can find me there and um, they can certainly visit my website, which is just sarahehill.com. And they should buy the book. This is your brain on birth control. You can find it on um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble or anywhere that books are sold. Well, Sarah, again, thank you. And I can't wait to hear about some of that research that you were telling us about. Great. Thanks so much. I never thought that something that was supposed to impact my sexual health would have an impact on future generations. Yikes. Please go read this book. It's really out of this world and something that you should know about. Give it to your girlfriends, pass it along to your doctors and your OBGYNs. People need to know that the harm of the pill is much more than just gaining a couple of pounds. I'm super excited to hear about the future research that Sarah and her team happen upon. The more we know, the more we can make smart choices rather than be forced into a choice. If you learned something during this episode, 
will you do us a kindness and leave a review or tag us on social media? Let's share the wealth together and unlearn some of these fallacies that are really harming our future health. If you enjoy content like this, then chances are you'll love our global online private community of women's health explorers. You can join us at www.whealth.community. Catch you there. Until our next health exploration, stay awesome.